Now, I was studying Ruth 3 a little bit this morning, and I have a question for you that I want you to ponder over the next two weeks with Ruth chapter 3. And that is, you can write it down or just try to remember it. Why did Boaz give her six measures of barley? What is significant about that? There's nothing insignificant or coincidental in Scripture. Why six? Why six? And so be pondering that for the next couple weeks and maybe Google it, study it out, and see what you can come to on that. But one of the things we talked about is how east is always a direction of what? Exile. Anytime you see someone going from west to east in the scriptures, it's a picture of exile. And you remember we talked about you know, um, Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons, they have to go east because there's a famine in which town? Beit Lechem, the house of bread. So the author of this is trying to draw out from us the, the irony, I guess you could say the severity of this story, that there is a famine in the royal town of the house of bread. And there was a great hunger, it says in the Hebrew. So they moved east from Moab. Now, where did the Moabites come from? Who was their father? Lot. Lot. Remember, it was that incestuous relationship that happened in the cave between his daughters, right? And that became the Moabites. They're having to go and find food. They're leaving the royal town of Bethlehem. They're going east to a place of exile. And not only that, but to the place of Moab, the place of the result of all of that stuff. It's kind of a, a shameful thing, right? And then we talked about this word last week. Does anyone remember what this word was? Besorah. Besorah. Besorah is what? It's good news. And we talked about it's very kingly and maybe even military kind of language, Besorah. It is like uh, the king was victorious in battle. He is returning. He has defeated whatever enemy was before him. And that means our kingdom is, stays intact. Think about that in ancient Near Eastern terms. If your king lost in battle, what does that mean for your kingdom? You know, if you're just Gabe Rutledge, you're just an average citizen, it means that there's an army on its way. And it means that I might become a slave for that army. It means that my women, my, my, my wife and my daughters, they might be married off to men in that army or in that kingdom. But if my king is victorious, it means rest and security, and it means the advancement of his kingdom. In the ancient Near Eastern world, in a world without social security, in a world without intercontinental ballistic missiles, in a world without drones, in a world without the CIA and the Navy SEALs and special forces and all this other stuff, in a world where it's king versus king, right? And everything hinges on those battles. That is good news, that the king was victorious. The king went forth, he met the opposition, and he won. That's good news. And we talked about how our king was victorious. How was he victorious? King Yeshua. He was victorious over the grave. How did he achieve that? Through his death, through his burial, and then through his resurrection. The grave could not hold him. And he purchased us through that act. That is good news. He was victorious over the king of death. The liar of liars, right? The one, the author of confusion. And he was the king, and he is now victorious over that realm. That's wonderful news to us, right? But it's important that we understand that. And not only that, but the king wants to regather those who were already exiled. That's really good news. The king wants to regather us. And then we talked about the galut. The galut is the exile. 
the exile. So if you're living in Galutz, it means you're living in exile away from the king. Maybe you don't even have a king, right? And the kingdom isn't well established. You're kind of lost, but you know that at one point you were, you were a part and a citizen of a certain kingdom, but now the kingdom is lost. You're in Galutz. You're in exile. And we picked up the story in Ruth 1 where she is in exile with her family. She's in the Galutz. Now, interesting fact, uh, did you know that in the year 70, it started what uh, Jewish people today call the Roman Galutz, the Roman exile? All the people were scattered from their land. A lot of them were taken into the, the, the Roman Empire and used as slaves, planted all around the Asia Minor. And Jerusalem was leveled. The temple was leveled. It started a 2,000-year-long galutz called the Roman galutz, the Roman exile. Let me ask you a question. Has that ended? <laughs> Has that ended? <laughs> Has the Roman galutz ended? Did you know, I think it was the year 2007, it could be wrong, about, you know, off a few years, there for the first time in 2000 years was more Jews living in the land of Israel, their ancestral land, than there was combined Jews living outside the land. That, the scales tipped, I think, in the year 2007. Isn't that interesting? Before that, the highest concentration of Jews was in New York. But that is no longer the case. And for the first time in 2,000 years, since 70 AD, there's more Jews concentrated in their ancestral land. That's exciting. So is the Roman Galut over? I don't know. But we see that things are changing, aren't they? Things are beginning to stir a little bit. The stage is being set for the king to come and regather all his people. And then we call that redeeming acts the Goel, we prayed that in the Amidah today, the Goel, the Redeemer. And Boaz is the Goel. He is the Redeemer. Yeshua is our Redeemer, our Goel. Okay? And that is, that's the act of restoring, not only restoring people, because, you, like I said, you could get a lot of the people of Israel in New York. But is that a true Goel? Is that a true redemption? It needs to be the eclipse of the people being together, and in their land. And you don't have the true goel until you have the people together and in the land. That's the important parts of the goel. So we talked about that last week. And then we talked about this concept of what is a metaphor. A metaphor is using symbols to represent bigger principles and ideas and themes. And I talked about how the, Ru the book of Ruth is to be read metaphorically. Did it happen literally? Yes, it did but we're to view it and to read it as a, as a long metaphor of something bigger and prophetic, right? And here are the elements of this metaphor. Not only she's the bitter one that was turned, or she was the, the pleasant one turned bitter. She lost all her tikva, her hope, right? What is the national anthem of the state of Israel? Not tikva, the hope. <laughs> she's regaining her hope now. You see that? So Naomi, she, she goes to exile and then she returns. But when she returns, she has this really important person with her named Ruth, the friendly one. Right. And Ruth is a symbol of who? The Gentiles coming to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They are friendly toward Naomi. Even in her exile, they are friendly. Now, Ruth, I would say, is like a picture of very embodied, embodied by people like Doris. Who, who, who lead Ma'aseyadav. Now picture, do you see that? How she's like, I, I just, I, I, I cling to your God and your people. 
Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And I will support you. And I will go out and I will work the fields and glean and bring support back to you. Physical support to make you full. I will do that for you because I love you. Because I love your God. You see, ministries like Ma'ase Adad embody that Ruthite mentality. And that's, metaphorically speaking, what Ruth is. And then we have one of our last major symbols, metaphorical symbols in the book of Ruth, is this character Boaz. And Boaz is the kinsman. He is the close relative. He's the linchpin that can get Ruth and Naomi in the land. And he can restore Naomi, which is a picture of Israel in exile. He can restore her to her land, and he can restore her to her people. And he is that linchpin. But if it were just the book of Ruth, if it were just Naomi and Boaz, would it work out? What else do we need? We need a Ruth. The story would not have completed itself and the redemption would not be fulfilled and, and seemed to be complete were it not for Ruth the Moabites. It's interesting, isn't it? And we talked about how Paul in Romans 11 says that it's not until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and then all Israel can be saved. You see the metaphor that's beginning to develop here? It's a beautiful story, right? There's a book I read several years ago called A Match Made in Heaven by this guy, Zev Hafez. And he, he, I think he's a, a journalist, a secular Jew and journalist for, I think, the Wall Street Journal uh, or one of these big newspapers or something. But this book is really interesting because this guy is coming from, from a secular viewpoint and he, he is pro-Israel, but he's secular. He's a, he, doesn't, he doesn't practice Judaism. But he likes Israel. But he also sees this interesting dynamic that's developing between evangelical Christians and the state of Israel. And he calls it like a match made in heaven. He doesn't fully understand it. And in this book, he goes and he interviews evangelical Christians, and he interviews Jews, and he interviews people that are doing like what Nestoris is doing, who just love Israel. And he's trying to get to the bottom of it. He's trying to understand it. And he talks about, like, the subtitle is American Jews, Christian Zionists, and one man's exploration of the weird and wonderful Judeo-Evangelical alliance. It's like without that like, obsession that evangelical Christians or Christians in general have for the people in the land of Israel, it's like it wouldn't, the story wouldn't complete itself. And who was the president whose mother said, if you ever get a chance to support Israel? You guys remember who that guy was? Who was that? Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon. His mother said, son, if you ever get a chance and the opportunity to support Israel in some way, do it. Very pivotal moment, right? But it's like you need that Ruth. You need that Moabites. And the Moabites are a little bit clueless sometimes. Ruth is a little bit clueless sometimes. She doesn't understand gleaning from the fields. She doesn't understand the kinsman redeemer. She doesn't understand all that. But she has one redeeming characteristic, and that is she's loyal, and she is stubbornly attached to the God and the people of Israel. And that's our role to fulfill. But this verse right here, if you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Like, man, we're going the wrong way. That is not Ruth. Go to Genesis chapter 12 real quick. Breshitz. Back in the beginning. Because I believe that God reveals all this stuff to us way back when, in the beginning. Way back here. Genesis 12. Genesis 12, in verse 1, this is Torah portion, Lech Lecha. 
It says, Now the Lord said to Avram, Get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, and away from your father's house. Go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless, there's one, you, and I will make your name great. You are to be a blessing too, and I will bless, that's three, those who for bless you, and I will curse anyone who curses you, and by you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's five times he uses the, ver- the, the word va- uh, bless, or baruch. Now that's exactly the same amount of times that he uses the word curse in Genesis chapters 3 through 11. Five times he uses the word curse. I will curse, I will curse, I will curse, I will curse. Five times he uses the word bless here in Genesis chapter 12 to reverse all that. In other words, Abraham... Through you and through your seed, all of those cursings that I pronounced will be reversed. Okay? Right here we have the gospel. This is it. This is the gospel. What am I talking about? Well, this is verse, uh, this is verse 3, right here in the original language. You guys, my Hebrew scholars can read along with me. So he says, and I will bless those who are a blessing to you. And this is important right here. And I will curse or those who are a curse, those who curse. Now, this is important. You see there's two different words for cursing here. There's kalalecha, right here, and there's aor. This aor is the same curse, the same word for cursing that's used when God is talking to the serpent in Genesis 3. It's intense. It's an intense cursing. He's saying if you curse Israel, if you curse the descendants of Abraham, then I will speak something to you that will be on the level that I spoke to the serpent. You don't want to go there. You don't want to be guilty of that. And then he says, And I will, this word, Becha. Now we'll come back to this word in a second. Kol mishpachot, and all the families ha'adama of the earth. So this word right here, this is the, the it's everything's hinging on this word. Vanivrachu, and I will, I don't fully understand that word. You know, the rabbis talk a lot about this word. And they say that, what does it mean that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed? What does it mean that God said this to Abraham? Does that mean that they'll gain like financial wealth, that they'll gain you know, notoriety, that they'll be prosperous? Maybe. Did you know this word and the root of this word, this word right here, barach, when it's paired up with the bab and the noon, it has an agricultural connotation. Have you ever seen people take and, and they, they, they take a wild, uh, like, a, like a trunk of an orange tree, and then they take a cultivated orange tree, like a satsuma, and what do they do? They put it on top and they wrap it together, and they graft it. The rabbis say that this word, it means in the sense of mixing together, like a, like a farmer grafts a tree together. Vanivachu. So we could reread this passage as, and through you, all the mishpachot, all the families of the earth will be mixed together with you or grafted into you. And that's so pitiful right here. Because we see this group appear as early as Exodus chapter 12. They're called the mixed multitude. In Hebrew, it actually uses arav, Rav. <laughs> and this is where we actually get the word Arab from. The Arav Rav. The great Arav. This could be seen as like, a, it's translated later in scripture as swarms. The great swarm. 
It maybe even has a connection to um, people who are, there was one paper I was reading was talking about this word being the idea of mercenaries that are like, so maybe some of the soldiers or the trained fighters from Egypt leaving and attaching themselves to the God of Abraham. But really it's the idea of someone who makes a pledge to someone. It's, a, it's like a great group of people who have made a pledge of loyalty. And then it goes on in Exodus, or sorry, Numbers 11.4. It calls them, this is, a, this is a really fun word, asusuf, asusuf. And that's, that's this rabble, this confused and kind of this uh, mixed bag, this motley crew of people that went out with the people of Israel. Right? They mixed themselves together in with them and attached themselves to God. This group could be Egyptians or they could be non-Israelite slaves. We don't know for sure. I would like to think that they are obviously non-Israelites that join themselves to Israel. But they're the, the, the Arab Rav. And then we have Jethro. Who is Jethro? He, was the, he became the father-in-law of Moses in Exodus 18. He was the father. He, what, is, what is his ethnicity? His lineage? He's a priest of Midian. Yeah. But what did he do? He eventually gave praise and worship to the God of Israel. What about this? Caleb, the great hero of Judah. He was a Kenizzite, one of the Canaanite tribes. What about this person? Tamar. She was a Canaanite. Remember? And she's the, she was the one that later uh, disguised herself uh, for Judah and birthed Perez and Zerah. Right? And she did it in a very taboo way, right? She, she disguised her identity. What about this? Rahab, another Canaanite, a prostitute. And James later calls her a porne, which is a very uh, derogatory term. And Joshua too, right? What about her though? She joins the story. And then we got Jael, Jael, Judges 4 and 5, the killer of Cicero, is a Kenite. She was another tribe. She came from the Canaanites, but joined in with the lineage of Israel. What about Ruth the Moabite? What about Obed-Edom? Remember the Ark of the Covenant was stored in his backyard and in his home and his property? He was a Philistine. A Philistine. What about Uriah and Bathsheba? Uriah was called a Hittite. And it's presumed his wife was as well. But his, his wife, Bathsheba, becomes the wife of David, right? Through this whole ugly ordeal. What about the queen of Sheba? What about the widow of Zarephath? So the one that gave Elijah, remember she gave Elijah spinal food in 1 Kings 17. She, she, was, uh, she was not an Israelite. What about Naaman, the Aramean commander? What about uh, people of Nineveh? Yeah. What do all these people have in common? Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Gentiles. They're all Gentiles. They're all from the nations, right? Goyim. They're all Goyim. But what else do they have in common? They join themselves and they become not some insignificant kind of like... Uh, you know, peripheral part of the story of redemption and Goel in the Bible, but they become pivotal parts of the story and the efforts of God to redeem and bring about the Goel, the redemption, and bringing about Yeshua into this world. Go with me to Matthew chapter 1 real quick. Matthew 1. They were all mixed together, right? They were grafted. You see, this idea is not just a New Testament concept of grafting into something. This is a very common theme in Scripture that 
Gentiles, goyim, attach themselves to the people of Israel and say, your God will be my God. It's just a pledge. It's just a changing and a circumcising of the heart. Genesis 1, let's see what we see here. This is the toldot, the genealogy of Yeshua, the Messiah, son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, somebody just shouted out, do you see any of the names of the people that I just went over in this list of people? Who do you see? Who? Perez. Perez. He was, the, he was the son of Tamar, who disguised herself as a prostitute, right? And who? Zerach, yeah. And it mentions Tamar right there, Tamar. Anybody else see anyone else? Rahab is in there. Rahab, wait, the Canaanite prostitute is in the genealogy of Yeshua? How can that be? And you see any other ones? Ruth. The Moabitess made it into the genealogy and became one of the matriarchs of the great redeemer, Yeshua of Nazareth. Uriah, Uriah is in there, the, the, the Gittite. Anybody else? There's Boaz, right? His mother was Rahab, Rahab. But you see the, the theme here is that God is taking a mixed multitude and he's mixing them in with the people of Israel and he's using them to play a pivotal role in the final redemption and bringing about Yeshua. But this was prophesied way back in Genesis 12, the very first book of the Bible. We see a mention of Venivrahu. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through you, all the families of the earth will be engrafted and mixed together. And then we get to this, one of my favorite chapters, Romans 11. Turn with me real quick to Romans 11. Romans 11. Paul, who is a phenomenal biblical scholar and theologian who's very well aware of the themes and the, the key concepts of the Tanakh, of the Hebrew Bible. He's aware of this, of this concept of grafting in and mixing in through the seed of Abraham. And he writes a letter to the believers in Rome many, many years later. And he's writing this letter to them. And he takes a minute and he goes on a side trail and he addresses a group of people in and amongst the Jewish believers in Rome. These are people who are following Yeshua, who are Jews, but now he's going to address the non-Jews that are there and worshiping with them, that have attached themselves to the God of Israel. He says to those in verse 13, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this, since I myself was sent to the Gentiles. I make known the importance of my work and hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if they're casting Yeshua aside means the reconciliation or the redemption for the world, just like Ruth, right, was the catalyst of redemption, what will their accepting of them mean, of him mean? It will be like life from the dead. Remember, I hate to spoil the story, but later in Ruth, Naomi is going to redeclare herself as hopeful, as coming back to life. Verse 16, 
Now, if the loaf or the challah that is offered as first root is holy, so is the whole loaf. The whole loaf. The root is holy, so are its branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, you, a wild olive, were mixed in among or grafted like vanivrahu, and you have become equal sharers in the rich root of the olive tree. And don't boast as if you are better than the branches. Because if you do boast, remember that you're not supporting the root. The root is supporting you. I see that so often. It's sad. It's sad. I see this in the, in the messianic world sometimes. Is that we look down our noses at unbelieving Jews. They don't believe in Yeshua as their Savior. Or we look down at even Judaism and say that, I have been studying Hebrew for six months and I know better than you who have been studying and dissecting the text for a couple thousand years. I know better than you. I'm arrogant. I'm going to boast in that. Now, does Judaism have some things wrong? Absolutely. But we have to practice humility in being like that Ruth, right? So you will say branches were broken off. I might be, bro- I may grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, you should be terrified. For if God did not spare even the natural branches, he certainly won't spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and his severity. On the one hand, severity toward those who fell off, but on the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Moreover, the others, if they do not persist in their lack of trust, they will be grafted in because God is able to graft them back in. For if you were cut off of what, what is a natural, uh, I'm sorry, if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree and then grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more? Will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? 25. For brothers, I want you to understand this truth, which God formerly concealed, but has now revealed, so that you won't imagine you know more than you actually do. I never see Messianic or Hebrews people think that they know more than they actually do. Never. <laughs> it is that stoniness to a degree that has come upon Israel. Until when? Until the Gentile world enters its fullness. And that it is in this way that all Israel, like Naomi, will be saved. As the Tanakh says, for out of Zion will come the Goel, the Redeemer, just like Boaz. He will turn away ungodliness from Yaakov. And this will be my covenant with them. And then I will take away their sins. He's quoting Isaiah 59 there. With respect to the Besorah, the good news, they are hated for your sake, but with respect to being chosen, they are loved for the patriarch's sake, for God's free gifts and his calling are irrevocable. Just as you yourselves were disobedient to God before, but have received mercy now because of Israel's disobedience, so also Israel has been disobedient now. So that by your showing them the same mercy that God has shown to you, just like Miss Doris is showing them mercy, they too may now receive God's mercy. For God has shut up all mankind together in disobedience in order that he might show mercy to all. And this is, he's going to give what some people refer to as a doxology here, which is like a, one of the first and earliest kind of liturgical prayers in our faith. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his ways. How unsearchable are his, I'm sorry, his judgments. How unsearchable are his ways. 
Four, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given him anything and made him pay it back? For from him and through him and to him all things are made. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In other words, Paul is saying, Gentiles, you were lost and without hope. But through God's mercy, you've been grafted into this natural olive tree. You're like wild branches. Produce the fruit of the olive tree. And in doing so, you might provoke some of my brethren to jealousy. Right? And in doing so, you might save some of my brethren. And when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then my brethren will be saved. And he's, he's, I think as he's writing this, I wonder if he has the book of Ruth and Genesis 12 rolling around in the back of his mind. And he's pinning this out and writing to, to us, the Gentiles. And so here in Dothan, Alabama, 6,000 miles away, we're doing our best to grab hold of the language, the people, the land of Israel. And I'm holding here an itinerary for a trip there. And, and we just have this divine longing for his people and in in, in his faith and his language and his, his land, right? And many of us would just love the opportunity just to step foot. I remember, uh, <laughs> I remember going to En Gedi where David hid out with his, uh, his Giborim, his mighty men. And there was all these caves and these springs and these waterfalls, and he lived there on the, the, near, the, near the Dead Sea in En Gedi. And En Gedi is the spring of Gedi. And there's this beautiful waterfall that comes down. You can walk up this path. And I remember it was a really hot August day, and I walked out. I took my shoes and socks off and rolled my pants up, and I walked out into this pool. And then we had an Israeli tour guide with us, and uh, his name was Gil. And Gil was watching these five Americans walk out into this pool. And I remember taking a handful of water. And, and I was standing in this waterfall and I had the water running down my head, my head and cooling me off and I was just soaking wet. I remember taking a handful of water and I remember looking at it and saying, this is probably gonna make me sick, but I don't care. And I took the biggest gulp of this spring water from this waterfall. And I was, as I was like gulping this down, I was thinking to myself, I'm drinking water from a spring that David drank. And I'm just like, this is amazing. I don't even care if it gives me the runs. <laughs> it didn't, by the way. Something else did, but no, I'm just kidding. TMI, TMI. But I'm just gulping this down, right? I'm like, this is, a, and I have a bottle of water. Like, I have spring water with me. I have, I have like purified water. But, you know, it's from like the municipal water supplies and everything. But, like, I want to drink water that came up out of the land, you know? And I, I just, Gio was probably just sitting there like, these guys are weird, right? These people are strangely obsessed with my... It'd be like if someone came from Beijing and came to Dothan, Alabama, and they're like, I heard all about your peanut festival. I just want to go, and I've heard about your turkey legs and your fried Oreos and the parades and this and that and all the rides and everything. Please take me, show me everything, show me everything. And they stay up all hours of the night, and they're just like going bonkers, you know, just experiencing, and they're going around town and getting all selfies with the, the peanut out front of all the businesses and everything. And they're just so excited about being in Dothan, Alabama. And we're just like, okay, that's, that's neat, but that's weird, right? We like our town too, but not that much. You know, but what does it do to us when we see something that's like that? I love it here, you know? It inspires, like, pride in us. And, wow, there's something moving in them that was maybe prophesied about long ago. And Yeshua talks about this. Well, first got to cover Isaiah 56. Thus declares the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. He says, I will gather them still others besides those already gathered. 
In other words, yeah, I'm going to gather Israel. And he says in Isaiah 49, I believe it is, it's too small of a matter to gather his people Israel and the, and the descendants of Yaakov. But I will gather some from the nations as well. Watch me. He's showing off. I'm going to gather. I'm going to woo some of them. And then Yeshua in 10, uh, John 10 says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold that I must bring, and I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. How many flocks? One. one. How many shepherds? One. one. You see, there's this really destructive theology that has unfortunately crept into the church and it's been there for a couple thousand years called supersessionism. And this is a description of it. And basically, in short, supersessionism says this. God is done with Israel, unfaithful Israel, and he's going with plan B, which is the church. And the church supersedes Israel in the plan of redemption. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is satanic. Because God said, if I forget my people of Israel, it'll be like me forgetting my right hand. So that is making God out to be a liar. And that's what Satan hopes to achieve. Therefore, this doctrine is satanic. Okay? We believe in inclusive theology, ingrafting theology, biblical theology. That God has nations, there's Israel, nations, and he wants to invite some of the nations to the table. And he wants to continue his plan of redemption through the people that he's preordained to accomplish it. And that is the people of Israel. They are, this book is about them from the first page to the last. They are the vehicle of redemption for the world. And he keeps his promises. So we denounce supersessionism. This is really important. This was just kind of my review day for you all today. Just to kind of help you align some key concepts and some ideas before we dig into Ruth chapter 3 in two weeks from today. Now, one week from today, we'll have Adrian speaking. And so you don't want to miss that. But your homework is to read Ruth 3. And what was the question? Why six measures of barley? Why were six given to Ruth? All right, let's close in prayer. And then we're going to close out with the ironic benediction. Abba, Father, I thank you that you keep your promises. I thank you that you are a God who is faithful to his people. You're consistent. You are trustworthy. You are holy and you are good. May we be beacons of your goodness and your mercy to the world. And I pray right now for Ms. Doris and Ma'ase Yadav. May you, through this trip, open up some of the widest doors and the, the best opportunities to share the gospel of Yeshua and his mercy with those that are living in the land. May she be like Ruth, who shows a steadfast love for Naomi and the people of Naomi, even in their exile. May they experience the love and the care of Yeshua through her ministry. I pray all this in the mighty and matchless name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen.